and welcome back to the New Moon Opera Podcast. I'm Mallory Harding, and I'm the Artistic and Executive Director of New Moon Opera, and I'm here today with Stephen Michael Patrick and Rachel Long, who will be starring in our double bill in April. More on that later. First, I want to tell you a little bit about New Moon Opera and our podcast. New Moon Opera was founded in 2014 to present fun and accessible performances of opera and other vocal music to the Chicagoland community. We started the podcast last season to introduce our audience to some of the artists who would be featured in our 2018 production of Cendrillon by Pauline Viardot, as well as to have some fun and educate our fans about the opera we were producing. We're back for a second season to have fun, talk opera, and meet some of the artists involved in our upcoming production. So welcome, Michael and Rachel. Thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast today. How are you today, Michael? Good. How are you doing, Rachel? Good, thanks. You good? Well, I know, um, so, well, I should say this, we are actually recording this on a Sunday afternoon, but it won't be released until later in the week. So that being said, I know both of you have already been singing today. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So right now, um, I'm currently kind of a super sub at St. Matt's in Evanston. Um, basically, they have a couple different section leaders and um, a lot of volunteers. It's a really great choir. Um, and it's led by Mark Creighton and James Jansen, who, for those Roosevelt people, are, are um, big into that because Mark is teaching there currently. Right. Um, but yeah, it's a really great group, and the section leaders will help the volunteers and, and hopefully lead in that and get them more confident into, into sight reading and things like that. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't think that a lot of our audience probably realizes that church jobs and sometimes synagogue jobs, too, can be like a way that classical musicians and especially singers can really like try to make a living from their art. So it's, I think we're all really thankful for our jobs. Oh, <laughs> like yes, that. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about your church job? Yeah, so I work at Second Presbyterian downtown. Uh, we don't have a large choir, our loft is really small, so we just have a professional quartet. So it's me, another young singer, and two lyric choristers. And we do all the music between us and the organists at the church. That's so cool. That sounds really fun. Um, okay, let's see. So, Michael, you and Rachel are both involved in several upcoming opera performances this spring and winter. Can you tell us what you're doing and shout out some of the great companies that you're going to be working with? Yeah, so at the end of February, I'm doing Nemorino in Sivak's Elixir of Love. And then... About around the middle of March, I will be uh, Sir Walter Raleigh in Gilbert and Sullivan Opera Company's Merry England down in Hyde Park, and then Renucho in Johnny Speaky. <laughs> <Yay! Newman. laughs> what about you, Rachel? You're also doing a lot of stuff this winter and spring. Yeah, I've definitely been blessed with opportunities, that's for sure. Um, let's see. The middle of March, I will be... Um, doing a double bill also, a double bill. Um, just doing one, um, <laughs> Susanna's Secret with Evanston Chamber Opera, yeah. um, or Echo for short, that's also right. up in Evanston at the same church, mm -hmm. um, and then I will be, in the end of March, I will be in Transgressive Theater Opera's uh, production, they're doing uh, Cantori, and I will be doing um, the cover of Countess Adele, and then mm -hmm. I'll be doing the ensemble. Um, they're also pairing it with, it's called uh, Letters of Love and Subterfuge. Right. Um, they're doing that the following weekend, so that's the last weekend in March. 
um, and are doing a whole bunch of different things, but I will be doing um, Susanna in the Noche de Figo. They're doing Act 2, which will be really cool. Fun. Yeah. So, two Susannas. In two Susanna and Susanna, <laughs> I guess, if you want to differentiate. <laughs> That's awesome. It sounds Hopefully really fun. I'm, you know, confused. Well, I don't know what it is, but it'll be fun. <laughs> um, so, one thing I think a lot of our audience would like to know is how you both got into opera. Because I don't think your average person realizes how many opera singers and just classical musical musicians in general there are in the world. So, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about how you started singing and when you got into opera? Yeah, honestly, I just kind of stumbled into it. Uh, I was an instrumentalist for the longest time. I played saxophone for a little over 10 years. And then I was originally planning on just doing that about... I joined the choir at my high school around my junior year, and it wasn't until around halfway through my senior year that I started taking lessons and just immediately fell in love with singing. And so I went to, I went to West Virginia University, where I grew up, and just majored in voice, not really knowing what I was going to do with that. I lucked into finding this really great teacher who just clicked with me uh, super well and kind of helped sh like foster a love for this music that I didn't really know anything about at the time and kind of helped guide me through the learning process. It was really great. That's so cool. So what made you, when you went to school for singing, though, were you ever considering like, oh, I want to do jazz or musical theater? Like what made you pursue classical singing over other um, types. Yeah, I had I had thought about musical theater, uh, which is still something I do a little bit now. Mm -hmm. But I was just kind of seeing what was out there. I was so new to singing, I didn't know what my voice was really going to be well suited for. I mean, like I was like eighteen, right? So like my voice was nowhere near done developing, <laughs> yeah. and I was yeah just trying a lot of stuff. Classical music is just really kind of what the degree program pushed you towards. There wasn't really the opportunity to do much else. Like, we would work on other things kind of here and there, but the degree program there was so heavily regimented towards classical music, there wasn't a lot of wiggle room. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, Rachel, what about you? How did you get into singing in opera? Well, I come from a very big family. I'm the youngest of six kids, and I always wanted to be around my brothers and sisters, and... My closest in age sibling, uh, Matt, he would always, he's so talented. He picks up a whole bunch of like um, sports and things like that, but he's self-taught on the acoustic guitar. Oh. And so I always wanted to hang out with him. And so he would always have me sing with him. And I was like, wait, I really like doing this. It was probably my freshman, sophomore year of high school when I started voice lessons, because I was like, oh, this is fun, maybe I'll try to do that, and the musicals are great, and everything, mm -hmm. and my very first voice teacher introduced me to the infamous 24 Italian Songs and Arias <laughs> book, uh, that pretty much every young singer gets into, that's how they get into it, um, and I fell in love with it, I loved the style, I loved the power that came with, that comes with classical singing still, um, so yeah, I really fell in love with it, and my teacher helped me pick out schools, and I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, which is also basically where I grew up. I grew up right outside of the city. Okay. Um, and I loved it, and it's kind of the rest is history. <laughs> That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so before I ask you both this next question, I want to take a minute to talk about our upcoming double bill. 
The first weekend in April, we will be performing a double bill of Il Campanello by Donizetti and Gianni Schicchi by Puccini. Uh, we'll be performing in Italian with English supertitles. And um, Jennifer Cox is our stage director, and Eric Douglas Carlson is our music director and pianist. So it's going to be really fun. Uh, tickets will go on sale in February, but for our listeners, you can read more about the production at newmoonopera.org. That being said, Michael, you are going to be playing the role of Renew Joe and Jenny Skiki. Can you tell us a little bit about the character? Yeah, so uh, Renew Joe is uh, part of this massive family, and we see them all right after uh, his uncle uh, Buozo died, and everyone's everyone's lamenting that. And, but they uh, Buozo was super rich, and so. Everyone wants to find out find out what like what they got in the will so that they can live a more comfortable life. Um, Renuncio is sort of your like stereotypical tenor romantic. And he just <laughs> doesn't care about any of those like these riches. He just he just wants the money so that he can uh, marry Laretha and they can be happy together. Because um, everyone else except for Bozo is kind of poor, and so everyone's like trying to like scheme and get their way in, and he's just like. No, but love. <laughs> <laughs> and Rachel, you're going to be playing the role of Loretta, Renucho's object of affection. Um, and she's got one of the most famous arias in all of opera. I think most people would recognize her aria, even though they don't probably know what it's from or what it's about. Absolutely. And actually, it doesn't really sound necessarily like what it's... What people usually think of when they hear it, it sounds really... <laughs> tragic and grand and oh like I don't know it, I think people have like a kind of a the wrong impression about that opera can you or that aria can you tell us what's going on and like who Loretta is sure um I think similar to Renucho uh, I loved your I loved Michael's um description of this the stereotypical tenor romantic <laughs> well Loretta is the stereotypical soprano romantic mm -hmm. absolutely they definitely go hand in hand I think that the aria comes out of nowhere in the opera. It really does. It doesn't sound like anything before it or really any anything after it. Um, so it is this super, almost comically serious part in the opera. And yeah. you know, everyone's fighting um, because the Donati family where that Renuccio is part of, um, they're fighting because Renuccio brought in Gianni Schicchi to help fix this issue. Right. The issue being um, Bozo Donati um, is giving all of his money to the church instead of his family uh, and Rinuccio has this brilliant idea to bring in Gianni Schicchi who is Loretta's father right. so that he'll come in, save the day, fix everything and then his family will be so excited that he's going to let him marry <laughs> Loretta. So right. the, the aria is her begging her father, Jenny Skiki, to stay and help the Donati family through this. Right. Because right. she wants to marry Renuccio so badly that she says, <laughs> I want to do this so bad. I love him so much. If you don't do this, if I can't marry him, I'm going to throw myself into the river. 
So, you know, that's uh, pretty dramatic, but it's effective. It works. Right. <laughs> Spoilers, but, you know. In some ways, she's kind of like a typical teen daughter, right? Oh, 100%. She throws herself on the couch. And says, I'm never going to love again unless you let me go out with this person. So. Right. And I feel like they're both, like, that it's the it's sort of like this quintessential young first love romance where especially like the moment where Skiki's like trying to plot and he's like oh there's nothing we can do and they're like oh no farewell forever he's like wait no oh no and it's like and there's just like these like huge like bursts of just oh yeah and that happens a lot in the music like the rest of the family and Skiki are like they're doing their thing a lot of their music is like more in the lower range of their voices and they're talking there's a, like a lot of more um, speech like singing than like big long lines and then there's several times in the opera where all of a sudden Loretta and Renucha are like interrupting <laughs> and singing these gorgeous like the most gorgeous melodies and then and then the whole family is like underneath like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then they come in and they have these long lines so it really fits their personalities like I think their music fits the personality and that's probably also you know where you guys are getting some of your ideas of their personality it's just from the music too because uh, yeah we don't always we don't always have a lot of information just by the score and what the character says mm -hmm. we also are going by what their music sounds like to inform how we play their character I think yeah absolutely. yeah definitely <laughs> I'm really excited for that. And the uh, spoiler, I'm going to be playing Renucho's aunt, and she's kind of a B I T C H. <laughs> so I'm really excited for that. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for answering those questions for me. And um, I'm hoping that anybody who's listening might email and ask some questions that you might want to know from future New Moon Opera guests. Um, and yeah, just email us at newmoonopera at gmail.com if you want to ask the um, artists any questions. Um, so, okay, now that we're done talking to interviewing you guys a little bit, I'd love to ask Michael to kind of take over and talk about our main um, kind of academic topic this week that I think everyone's going to really enjoy learning a little bit about. So go ahead, take it away. Yeah, so I feel really strongly about the inherent accessibility of opera and sort of how we've built that up culturally sort of against that. Mm -hmm. And so I was, uh, Mallory asked me to come in and talk about sort of the, how we viewed opera culturally and sort of when this changed, particularly in the US. Mm -hmm. So like at its very earliest beginnings, opera was only for the elites when they were they were the ones wholly funding it it was just for like these people would get together they'd have all their friends over for these big parties and there would be an opera happening in the background <laughs> um but even then when it's this like highly classist thing there's a huge difference in the way it was treated where it wasn't this like huge thing we put up on a pedestal where like you like can't you can't ever talk you can't do anything like it was it was a party event people were eating they were drinking like you might even be like playing cards over in the side or something and we saw that happen even as opera moved into the public opera houses it was this like populist storytelling medium and every time we get to like a new era of opera 
it always started with all the composers and librettists going, whoa, 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 hold on, we forgot, we forgot the text, it's all about the text and the story, let's <laughs> tell a story, and I feel like now we're kind of at that point again where we get caught up in the idea of, like, opera as spectacle, and opera as this, like, form of music that is, like, cannot, can't be touched, it's sacred, and we forget about the stories that we're telling. Yeah. And I think we see this primarily with uh, operas and the symphony. Mm-hmm. Because, like, a lot of people have this... I remember when I was in middle school and, like, in sort of a general music class, they went around the room and we had to, like, t- talk about... We had to, like, say our name and what kind of music we liked. Mm-hmm. And almost everyone's answer was one of two, and that was... I listen to everything except for opera and country, or I listen to everything <laughs> except for opera and rap. Yeah. <laughs> and I bet, like, no one no one in that room had, had really listened to opera. Mm-hmm. But we have this idea inherently that it's not for us. It's for, like, the bigwig rich people, and only they can like it. And we lose sight of the sort of potential there when I know a lot of people love listening to, like, movie soundtracks and other contemporary examples of classical music, because of the way that we treat this now, it's sort of, we think of it as almost inherently inaccessible. Yeah. But there was a time, even in the U.S., where that wasn't true. Uh, I remember when I was I was researching for the, uh, in my master's, I was doing a paper on cultural capital and classical music and sort of how how that informs taste and therefore like behavior Mm. and there was a time sort of at the end of the the end of the 19th century turn of the 20th century where touring opera companies would sell out small midwestern towns wow like can you imagine just like a touring (laughs) opera company like stopping at some random small town in Illinois and selling out their theater. That would be amazing. Right. right. But it's, <laughs> Let's revamp that. Yeah. <laughs> when we saw the like emergence of the middle class, the impresarios of the time saw like this new group that had disposable income, and so they tried to capitalize that by playing up opera as high culture and high art like super sophisticated so that the now upwardly mobile emerging middle class would try to get in on that to then appear of a higher station than they were yeah which worked for a while but it kind of had the opposite effect where we then got that to become more and more elitist as more and more people thought of it as is it, like, cemented this idea that, oh, no, this is the wealthy art. Right. And then it started leaving out the... It started to leave out more of the middle class and the classes below it. When we look at studies, there are, isn't really much of a difference in, the t- in people's taste between the classes. So like some people try to talk about like oh well you have to you have to have all this grand sophisticated like <laughs> understanding yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. yeah but and tr- taste is formed early in part because of the cultural perceptions we gain or like we get or we acquire around all of these different things mm-hmm. and but when you sit down and 
play excerpts for people, we find that way more people like classical music and specifically opera than they report initially. Yeah, yeah. Well, because it's everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's in so many commercials and cartoons, and I can't tell you how many times I've stopped dead while just, you know, cooking or watching TV or, or something, and something's on in the background, because I hear a singer, and I'm like, oh, what is that? Yeah. But, you know, I feel like people do that with the Bugs Bunny cartoon, for example. Mm-hmm. That one was a huge one with Barbara Seville. And it's so funny, Michael, when you bring up, you know, I was just having this conversation with somebody saying, oh, well, you need to know so much about opera in order to appreciate it. But the building blocks of opera are so simple. It's storytelling, just yeah. like you just like you mentioned. And if you, if, if the general population can understand and follow all the Game of Thrones characters, right. <laughs> you can for sure get 90, <laughs> if not 100% of these opera stories. Absolutely. And there's, it's true that there's a lot of depth to each opera, and mm-hmm. like if you really want to take the deep dive, you can find a lot of nuances, but I know like as an actor, I take a lot of cues from my characterization by what's in the music mm-hmm. and I feel like when you hear it it's pretty clear what the composer and librettist intentions were yeah and those have to be those like more subtle musical things have to be specific enough that they read for the audience and so I think that we sort of get this false perception of like you have to have all this work beforehand but it's yeah, it's, it's all just right there. If you just listen to it the same way you would a musical or something else, it's musicals and operas are essentially doing the exact same thing. It's mm-hmm. still just sung theater. But we even see like the, the cultural perception around them are so different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's almost like I mean, you could even use the example of a movie. Maybe the first time that you watched Inception. You were just, you were a little confused, but you were like, this is a beautiful movie. I love the soundtrack. The acting is incredible. I'm a little confused on the story, but this was cool and my mind's blown. And then the second time you watch it, you, you, you notice, you start noticing more. You notice like thematic things that maybe you didn't see Mm -hmm. the first time. So it's, it's the same with opera. You, you know, there's some that are more simple that maybe you will understand almost everything the first time, but there's other operas just like you know, challenging movies or shows that you, you just, you can get it at the service level and you can enjoy it that way. And then maybe the fifth time you've seen it, you might start enjoying it in a deeper level, but it doesn't mean the first time the service level that the way you enjoyed it, that's not negated just because there's more that you can understand. Mm -hmm. I think actually the sort of the first two points you had for liking the movie was like the soundtrack's amazing yeah. and the acting's amazing yeah. and but and I feel I feel like this that's sort of a message that we lose in some opera companies like mm-hmm. people get so caught up in the music that they forget they forget the storytelling aspect yeah and I remember uh, I was talking to a friend and he was telling me a story about a set designer that they used to work with and that set designer had said that they really loved wor- uh, working for opera companies because they got to make these great uh, sets because yeah. and uh, people need something to look at when they get bored. <laughs> but when that's the when that's sort of like the mindset of the people like 
at the top of the creative team, it really shows in the, the core of the I- the issue. Yeah. And we see like m- almost uh, like most of the degree programs for voice performance don't really include any acting training. Yeah. They might recommend it, but it's not required at all. True. And we see that with a lot of singers that they get caught up in this idea of like one perfect sound Mm -hmm. and they come up and then they make their sound and that leads to this kind of stereotypical idea of opera where you've got like the couple people on stage that are going to like do big sing their big thing maybe move a bit sing a little bit more (laughs) and you have this like massive ridiculous like grandiose set behind them right and when you have these things that kind of dehumanize the characters we just care less about what happens to them yeah but if we could think about it instead of like grounding in realism to then like present something that people can empathize with it's like when there was a i remember i was watching the live stream of covet garden's Traviata a couple years ago yeah and when they were in violetta's room she has like 80 foot tall windows (laughs) And it's, like, it's kind of ridiculous. Like, they're taking up the entire height of the stage. Yeah, like, it looks cool. a bedroom. Right. And it makes you think, like, where's she living? Why is, like, like, what what is this mansion? Right. um, What kind of sex worker is this? (laughs) And so, it's just... A high class for sure. True. (laughs) And it's just, like, little things like that where, like, this should be a small, intimate space. And if you worked with, like negative space on stage that could bring you in to the intimacy of the moment but instead it's like blown up in the most ridiculous way possible yeah and it isn't representative of a place that a person would actually live in right i get that point but we're i think that operas are also competing with movies for example Mm -hmm. Which you can do a lot more with cameras and camera angles yeah. with, with movies than you can, obviously, with live theater. I'm, I'd be curious to put operas and, music, and musical sets side by side to see if they're any different. Yeah. You know, just because they're... I mean, typically, I would say that in a musical, you would have more people on stage more consistently. I guess mm-hmm. not always. I'm thinking of, say, La Boheme and 42nd Street. Yeah, I know. I know. Rent is typically there, but you know, I mean, Forty Second Street. It's tap numbers, and you have so many people on stage. Yeah, and it's so colorful, and it's amazing. But I remember seeing my not my first Bohem, but my first Bohem in Chicago, in oh god, it's gonna age me. <laughs> um, twenty twelve, I think, where um right before the duet in Act One. They fly out um, a couple set pieces, and you're left with, um, oh my gosh, you're left with their tiny apartment, yeah. but it's so breathtaking because you see the moon, and it is larger than life, you know, they're, yeah. they're not somewhere, they're not rich by any means, just the opposite, they're super poor, they wouldn't be living in such a grandiose space, but yeah. I feel like with opera, you do have to create that spectacle. Yeah, right. and I mean, I think there are, there are times where, like, it's it's not like you always need small, minimalist things like that. Like, it's just that, like, you can play with sort of the effects of that. Yeah. And, like, I agree that there's, there is a certain amount of spectacle kind of inherent in the genre, but I think we sometimes get 
too caught up in the idea of that spectacle, and so like everything gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> oh, that's right. true. To sort of like, because that's also that's one of the things that sort of has like diminishing returns. Like if you do something like super big one season, and now it's like okay, if you go to like the same level of spectacle, you've kind of lost. Yeah, the some of that, that yeah. shock and like, and that leads to just larger and larger and more <laughs> ridiculous and I think there are times that it's done really well like I think Rigoletto at the Lyric last season they did a gr- I thought their set design was fantastic and they played with space in a really interesting way and they yeah. had this obscenely steep rake um, <laughs> but it, it was, was great cool. and yeah. I thought and like they they had a great way of of taking up most of the stage space but in a way that felt natural there was never anything that really kind of like took me out of the experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah so i want to go back a little bit to how early audiences enjoyed opera specifically like in the 18th and 19th century like we see in the movie amadeus uh sorry we talking we keep talking about movies but i guess that's because i always think of movies like, I love movies so much, and I like opera. Like, it's they're, like, the same to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, you know, in the, in the scene uh, in Amadeus where they're showing, like, people enjoying one of Mozart's operas, but it's not... It doesn't look like if you walked into the lyric today and you saw the audience, you... They're not acting in all the same way that they are in Amadeus. And, well, I guess a lot of Amadeus isn't real, but I think, <laughs> from what I read, I believe that the audience's behavior in that scene is... Oh, pretty typical. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this uh, kind of the way that we treat classical music now is sort of a response of the great concert culture in the late 19th century, mm. uh, like sort of around the era of like Brahms and composers like that um, was when we like got this sort of like hallowed, like no one can like talk or disturb <laughs> things because like, there are even times that symphonies were performed with breaks. Like, right. you would go and you'd see, like, a premiere of a new symphony, and they would do the first movement, and then, like, here's a string quartet. And then there's the second movement, and, oh, yeah, you're also playing cards. <laughs> and it wasn't purely background music, but it was it was a social event. It's like if you were to go to a concert with your friends, you wouldn't expect to, like, if you, like, Outside of classical music. Right, right. You wouldn't expect to, like, okay, we're all going to go, we're going to sit, and we're just going to, like, stare in the same direction, <laughs> and we're never, like, no one's going to interact or communicate at all. Like, you go to most contemporary concerts, and, like, there is lots of drinking and food and side conversations happening during the act, but no one sort of takes that as, like, an affront to the arts. Like, anyone's, like, disrespecting them. It's just music is sort of inherently a social experience especially when you need like by just virtue of some number of performers and some number of audience members you've got sort of like three different social interactions happening there within the cast within the audience and in between them Mm -hmm. but when you remove that it just kind of i don't know it's this weird kind of numbing effect which also leads to like this sort of stuffy culture around it when it's yeah. just the same. It's music that's meant to be enjoyed and shared. And I can't really think of anything else that we are supposed to show our appreciation for with that with 
like, deadpan silence. <laughs> right. I mean, it's kind of like if you go to the movies, right? I mean, now we have Netflix and so many streaming yeah. things that I watch it from my couch. <laughs> um, but I, I'm such a purist. When it, I'm one of those people that when I go to the movies or I go to the opera house, if you're crinkling something, I will give you a look. <laughs> I'm like, nope, silence, let me enjoy this. I'm a weirdo. I don't know. But... I don't know. I would say that if you go to a movie theater, it's kind of the same. You know, Similar, you're, yeah. I mean, no, it's not live mm-hmm. people, obviously, but... But you're not, like, supposed to talk around you. Right. Yeah, that's true. See, I guess, I don't know, because I know, like, the, at least in my family, like, it's not like we would have, like, full-on, like, conversations discussing what was happening yeah. directly in the theater, but, like, we would have, like, a little bit of side talk mm-hmm. or... And that was, it seemed like most of the theater was usually doing that, where they were just like, they may not be like talking about work or something. <laughs> right. Like but they might be asking what's going on on the yeah, screen or right, oh, is that, like, that person from that show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're talking about the actors or they're, or they're commenting on sort of like the, the, like the, where it's set yeah. or mm-hmm. even sort of like trying to anticipate things that are coming up and mm-hmm. sort of sharing like guesses that they have. But this is like, a way where there's that bit of social interaction, maybe to, like, a smaller degree than you see at, like, a concert hall. Yeah. Um, but we're, like, sort of politely quiet Mm -hmm. conversation is fine. Right, I would really, I would really like for people to feel comfortable to do that at our performances, because, um, yeah, music is social, and, like, it's gonna be more enjoyable if you can speak to the people around you a little bit about Mm -hmm. it, because you know, like we were talking about understanding opera, if you share an insight that you have, like, wait, I think I heard that melody before when that person came on stage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're sharing what you notice, and then your friends or or whoever you're with, they can notice that stuff too. Mm -hmm. And I know, like, if I were to see people talking, like, about the show while I'm on stage, like, I'm certainly not going to be offended. I'm going to be happy that that they're... into it and like there's certainly a level of that that becomes disrespectful yeah, but that's yes. usually when it's so loud or disruptive that it's like hindering the experience of the people around you right if you're taking or... some selfies <laughs> i better be in it. <laughs> <laughs> or like i remember there was a when the world cup was happening i'm trying to remember what touring company it was but there was during england's quarterfinal match there was this woman who was like watching the live stream during the second act <laughs> of, of, play, of oh a play, God. and it just like I remember it like blew up and went crazy. It's like <laughs> even some of the actors were trying to be like during bows were like trying to do, to like put it away, and she was like, "Yeah, we won," and, <laughs> and like that sort of a degree like that's, yeah, that's a bit that's removed a from that yeah. that's, but sort of because then she was like talking about the game to like the people around her. Oh. Um, and at that point, like, go to a bar and watch a game. Yeah. But I think, if, but if, like, sort of talking about the show or things sort of, like, around the experience yeah. should be encouraged. Yeah, I completely agree. I do, too. And I really like the, so many shows now have, like, a pre-show talk. And the yeah. does it a lot. And I don't know. I wish more people went because then I don't think that, for first-time opera goers or, you know, people new to opera, yeah. I think it would make it much more interesting. Absolutely. I mean, 
Opera singers are pretty much rock stars because <laughs> we sing everything without amplification. Hello! <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that that's where some education, I guess, would mm-hmm. make it more enjoyable. Uh, that sounds weird when no, I say I it. No, I agree, but, though, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, you watch previews before you go to a movie mm-hmm. to see if you would like it. I wonder if opera companies could do some kind of preview before... Yeah. You know, and just set it up on a website or, yeah, you know, okay, right. going, it, that would be so cool. I think yeah. that maybe that's something that opera's missing is just, like, a little bit of background that's not buried in that program, you <laughs> yeah. know, and it's, like, a paragraph before you the lights dim or anything like that. Just to learn yeah. a little bit more about it. Maybe common themes where, um, you know, some of these things come from. Yeah. I just think that that would be really advantageous for opera companies to do yeah i think a lot of it's in the presentation of that though mm-hmm. because Absolutely. like i think of arizona opera i remember i think it was last season they had this huge event that was uh to open their season uh that was beer brats and wagner <laughs> cool yeah, and yeah they were awesome. doing i think they were doing rheingold and nice. so beforehand they had like this huge cookout barbecue thing where they were just gonna like about the ring and everyone was gonna have beers and brats <laughs> and they also did this like book club thing where they were reading through Neil Gaiman's American Gods to oh. talk about the sort of mythologies that both the ring and American Gods kind of pull from at times yeah and I think that would pull pull people in like that sounds Absolutely. like a great time whereas sometimes I've gone to some of these pre-opera talks even if I know the show well and you get like it's not done it's not presented in a way that's appealing to anyone other than the people that are already going mm-hmm, it's like true. i think of like sort of my picture of all of these that i've been in is this like one like small old man at a podium <laughs> uh who's just like Everything that he's going to deliver is in this, like, really kind of soft, we'll just, no, we're like, not going to share any emotion about this, we're just going to be like, here's this character, and they're going to do this thing, and we're going to talk about this, like, deeply emotional problem that's, that all these characters are experiencing, but we're not going to, like, really act like we care about it at all. <laughs> and it's, or I talk to some people, and they say things like, it's a shame that young people aren't interested in opera, but then they don't want to do anything that will might attract new audiences. Right. And so like finding a way to change some of these pre-show talks to be more to be more appealing for people that aren't already like well versed in the culture of opera. Yeah. Would be great. Yeah, that's a great point. It seems like most of the sort of outreach style events or programs that we're putting into place are only to like more benefit the pe- the audience that we already have as right. opposed to trying to help usher in and sort of like guide new people into this like 400 years worth of canon. Right, because yeah, I mean it's almost like preaching to the choir like <laughs> so you say I mean the people I I feel like sometimes people specifically like at the lyric or another place like that a new person to the opera might say, oh, the pre-opera show talk isn't for me because I'm new to this. Whereas they should probably be guided towards that many, much more than anyone else because they are new to this. But for them, they might think, oh, I'm new to this. That's not for me. But yes, it is for you, actually. Especially... Hmm. 
That's true, especially when you're already planning on sitting in an opera yeah. for, you know, three hours on average. <laughs> um, who wants to sit there for an extra hour? Right. But that's a, I love the idea of, like, a, a pre-opera event, like, Bierbrot's and Wagner, or, you know, whatever. Yeah, because it yeah. Does, maybe it does take a little bit of extra effort to fully enjoy something like Wagner. I mean, that's kind of like saying... Okay, let's go watch Citizen Kane. That's not your <laughs> average movie that either. You know, that's not your not not your average. Per, you're not gonna just sit down on a Sunday afternoon and say, "Let's watch Citizen Kane." Same thing with Wagner. So maybe it does take a little more effort, but then they made it in like a fun way. So yeah. it's worth it to put in the effort. That's really cool. Well, this has been really interesting. Do you, any of you guys have? Do you, either of you have anything to add to our discussion about this? <laughs> I mean, I could sit and talk about this topic for <laughs> a really long time, but I think we covered the highlights and frustrations of a yeah. modern Yeah, no, same. This is like, yeah, one of the things that I, I could just go on forever about. <laughs> um, but does, does this mean we need to make a trailer now? now, that, now yeah, that I, think so. yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so. Steve trailer coming. Remember the Anna Netrebko music videos? Yes. Years ago. D- uh, cool. Yeah, d- uh, Joyce Donato did one yes. too. I think we need to bring it back. I, I do, do too, yeah. Right, I agree. Right. That's your next Let's do it. <laughs> All right, guys. So next thing, last thing really that we're going to do today is play some opera games. Oh, so gosh. I'm going to give you some dry erase boards and some markers. I hope my colleges aren't listening. <laughs> I'm not good under pressure. <laughs> okay, so... A lot of these, a lot of these games, you know, you might not get the answer. You might, <laughs> it might be really easy actually. So just don't feel bad either way. Okay. <laughs> okay, but I just want you guys to write your answer so you don't feel like you have to rush to yell it out. Okay, so the first thing we're gonna do, we're just gonna start with something easy. We're gonna do some opera trivia. So first question: Mario Cavaradossi is the hero in what opera? A Turindo slash Turandot, B, La Traviata, C, Tosca, or D, The Turn of the Screw. So that's Mario Cavaradossi is the hero in what opera? A, Turindo, B, Traviata, C, Tosca, D, Turn of the Screw. You got it! <laughs> Yay! It is Tosca! Good job, guys. Yeah, you, you they both got your, it. You presented your right. answer in a much more confident way than I did. <laughs> oh my god. But my face, my face showed the question mark. <laughs> okay, number two. I think you guys are going to both know this one because Rachel kind of brought it up earlier. Uh-oh. The, this musical was based on Puccini's La Boheme and won the Tony for Best Musical. I'm not even going to give you the options. No, you guys it. better know it. It is Rent! You Yay. all got it. Okay, now bonus points if you can name the composer. And I'll give you a hint. Oh. He has the same name as a local Chicago tenor. Yeah, um, Jonathan Larson. That's right! Boom! I had to think about the, the Hamilton <laughs> <laughs> They mentioned Jonathan Larson's Rent check. Oh, really? That's yeah, it's hilarious. It, it's in the mixtape. It's in the mixtape. They, like, uh, yeah, during Write My Way Out, in Lin Manuel's verse, he's got like a little line about coming late, like Jonathan Jonathan Larson's rent check. Oh, dang! 
like, is that a diss on Jonathan Larson? <laughs> no, no, he, he, di- he died before, uh, like, Rent got huge. Oh! So, like, he was, he was really struggling, and Rent was, like, it was, like, getting put on, but it didn't, he didn't, like, he didn't get paid yeah. and get his big break until after he died. Oh, oh my goodness, that's so sad. I didn't even know that. Yeah, no, Very so that was, like... Major yeah. bonus points, man. Yeah, wow. Okay, 100 extra points. <laughs> Number three, this multi-talented Chinese composer and conductor has written several operas as well as movie scores like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and even music for an Olympic opening ceremony. Name the composer. Is it A, Tan Dun, B, Qigong Chen, C, Aaron Copeland, or D, Lu Sola? I love C. <laughs> so it's is either A, Tan Dun, B, Qigong Chen, C, Aaron Copeland, D, Lu Sola. Shot in the dark. Oh, you guys guessed B, but it's actually A, Tan Dun. <laughs> you know what? We're just so in sync for this. Yeah. For this I know. <laughs> We're ready. We're so ready. So I want to tell you guys, actually, Tan Dun, he, uh, his operas are Marco Polo, The Peony Pavilion, The First Emperor, and Tea, A Mirror of the Soul. And so I just want to encourage our listeners to go online and read about him and listen to his music because it's it's really interesting. And I mean, obviously, most we know the music from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragons. Yes. Really cool. All right. So we're on to a new game. This one is New Year's Resolutions. You have to guess whose resolution it is. So here's an example. Uh, this These people's New Year's resolution is Cut back on sugar and stop eating other people's houses. Okay, this is a free. <laughs> Can you guess who it would be? Hansel and Gretel? Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so you guys might have seen some of these floating around on the internet at the beginning That's of really the internet. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a little bit easier. I'm gonna they're in categories. So in first one, these are all characters from Mozart operas. First one, get marriage counseling. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just think about it? Mozart opera, get marriage counseling. So do you want what the character you names? The character name, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Count and Countess Alma Viva. They both got it. They both got it. Okay, now... This one is sort of related. Number two is leave his cheating ass. <laughs> <laughs> so this may, one of your, the beginning answer may change a little. It could be so many. I was going to say. We this one's related to number one. <laughs> the Countess. Because <laughs> she should probably leave him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, here's another Mozart opera. Set a date and venue for the wedding. I think this would be one of your characters, but maybe not yet. Uh, yep. Yeah, just it's Donna Anna and Don Ottavio from That's Don Giovanni. True. She has some issues, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, he's way too pushy. <laughs> okay, so these next two are from French Grand Opera. First one is Take a Break from Dating. 
French Grand Opera, that is a huge category. <laughs> well, this one's a pretty common French Grand Opera, so I have a feeling you guys could probably guess. Take a break from dating. She's been dating too many losers. Some are kind of violent. This Some are just obsessive. This is what I was afraid of. I'll give you a hint. This, uh, even though the opera is in French, it doesn't take place in France. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> okay, Chris, it's Carmen. I know some people kind of disagreed with that oh. one. That's this is from the Metropolitan Opera Guild uh, Facebook. Oh, they okay. some people disagreed with this one online because <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not really her fault. I don't know. Also, and, I, get, I don't know why. Like I don't think of Carmen as French Grand. Oh, like, okay, okay. Because like when I think French Grand Opera, I'm thinking like four acts. Like yes. we're in this well, for a whole Carmen, evening. Look at how thick the Carmen score. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> it's I, really big. <laughs> I know. I just like it. Like I don't know why. Just like, it was just, yeah, like it was. It's like, too. It's so obvious that it, it was that's invisible. True, to that's you. true. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully, here's one you guys will get. Go to AA. Again, it's a really common opera. You've definitely sung excerpts from it. Here, I'll give you a hint. Do 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 First one, attend anger management classes. This could actually probably be a lot of different characters in Verismo. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. This one is a tenor. <laughs> Got it. Go for it. Go for it. Kanye, that's right. Kanye from Pagliacci. How <laughs> do you know that one? <laughs> okay, here's another one. Hopefully you guys will get. Try to be kinder to others. It's deaf. Okay, I'll give you a hint. It's, it is Puccini. It's dead silent. Okay, you go for it. Go for it. Who do you think? This is a bit of a punt. Oh, the Donati family? (laughs) (laughs) Shameless plug, shameless plug. (laughs) That's a good answer. That's not who I... They actually said Turindo. Because remember... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) Okay, here's the last one. Build a real estate empire throughout Tuscany. Also consider pursuing a career in acting. This is somebody who recently just inherited a lot of real estate and Imulai A. Mulini. Oh. Oh yeah, you don't sing that part. <laughs> yes, there you go. got it. It's I think it's like... <laughs> Yeah, you don't sing that part. I don't sing that part. <laughs> That's yeah, you're off like trying to feed a bird. Yeah. <laughs> This first one, number one, is Man Flees Love Goddess. Is it A. Rigoletto, B. Don Giovanni, C. 
Tannhäuser or Die Werther? Man, please, love goddess. What are the options again? <laughs> Rigoletto, Don Giovanni, Tannhäuser, and Werther. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. Michael got it right at C. <laughs> Wait, who's a love goddess in Don Giovanni? I don't know. Certainly not. <laughs> is she a love goddess? Oh, that was, I thought that was A. Never mind. Oh, oh, you were thinking, wait, which one did you think? Rigoletto? No. Werther? Tom Hoiser? I don't know. Tom <laughs> you know. I blacked out. I don't I know. Blacked, I blacked <laughs> out. My, my hand was You were too nervous. <laughs> yeah, in Tom Hoiser, you know, the character Venus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and, you know, it's funny because Tom Hoiser is the main character, but the whole time they never say Tom Hoiser. They always call him Heinrich. But the opera is named after this guy, and we never, in the whole opera, huh. we never say Tom Hoiser. Isn't that weird? That is really weird. Okay, number two. I bet you guys will know this one. Husband saved via cross-dressing. Is it A, Fidelio, B, The Marriage of Figaro, C, Pagliacci, or D, La Cenerentola? No, no, it's A. It's A. <laughs> Fidelio. I, oh, well, I guess you guys wouldn't know that one necessarily I because don't really you don't. listen to Fidelio. Yeah, yeah. You're talking to a, a tenor and a lyrics friend. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't sing on that opera. <laughs> I was just like, there's kind of a reason we didn't get the carbon one either. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'll tell our audience, Fidelio is Beethoven's only opera, and its original title was Leonore or The Triumph of Marital Love. Because Leonora, the, the main soprano in the opera, disguises herself as a man who is named Fidelio to free her husband from prison. And Fidelio is, like, faithful. So it makes sense yeah. that yeah. she would make up her name like I guess that. I, I, was, I got caught up in, like, the prince and, and like... Oh, uh, like, like change each other, but that's that, those are both dudes. So right, no it's not cross dressing, right? And in Marriage of Figaro, there is cross dressing, but it's not a husband. Right, it's just Carabino dressing like a girl. Right. So. Oh my gosh, I'm going home immediately and busting out my video. <laughs> oh, don't feel. Like, you know what? People always, whenever we Should do these study. games, I try to make them easy, but then like people usually say like. They just blanked when they play the game, yeah. so don't feel bad. <laughs> this is also to help our audience learn about opera, oh, so good. don't feel bad. And me. <laughs> okay, here's our last one, our last question. Must kiss severed head. Is it A, Turindo, B, Electra, C, Lucia di Lammermoor, or D, Zalome? <laughs> I can see why you would get confused by one of the other ones. Okay, so good. it's A, Turindo... B. Electra, C. Lucia di Lammermoor, and D. Zalame. Must kiss severed head. In <laughs> other words, this character requests this person's head on a platter. I don't, I don't even have a guess. It's okay. B. Electra. See, I knew you were going to guess that. It's actually Zalame. Oh, right. But it's easy because they're the same composer, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like buckets of blood. Yeah, they're both gross and <laughs> creepy. They're both pretty gross. <laughs> In um, Richard Strauss based the opera Zalame on Oscar Wilde's play, which borrows some elements from the Bible story and alters others. John the Baptist rejects Salome's pleas to kiss him or touch her hair. Herod promises her anything if she'll dance for him, and Zalame asks for John the Baptist's head after dancing the Dance of the Seven Veils so that oh, she can right. kiss his head. So, yeah, that's kind of gross. 
In the Bible, it's Herod's wife who wants John's head. So it's a little different in the Bible story. <laughs> okay, so let me tell you about the points. Oh, oh my gosh, it's a tie. 520 oh. to 520. Whoa. Good job, you guys. You're so smart. We are just so in sync. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you again to Rachel Long and Stephen Michael Patrick for being on this episode of the New Moon Opera podcast. Um, email us if you have any questions you want to ask New Moon Opera or our artists. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and look out for Michael's article next Thursday to learn more about how people used to enjoy opera and when that changed. Thanks again, guys. Thank you.